0: i am like to introduce Mike Martin from Liverpool, John Moores, uh, and he's going to talk to us, uh, I'm looking forward to this very much, The Application of Phenomenology to Explore Pre-Service Teachers' Experience in Placement in Schools. Right, thank you very much. Um, a curious title, um, it is exactly what I wanted to talk about. But then, in retrospect, when I've got this PowerPoint up and I'm thinking about application, suggesting that phenomenology is something that can be applied, and I think that in itself is, is problematic, which uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to as, as time goes on. I've put in an extra few bullet points at the beginning just to contextualise where I come from. Uh, I'm a teacher-educator working in a school of education, before John Morse. Um, I have a subject specialism, having been in... Engineer originally and then a teacher. Uh, we have a subject in England called design and technology uh, Which is part of the national curriculum and has been since 1990 so for 27 years I've been involved in helping uh, People become teachers so that they can teach this subject Which allows children to make things in three dimensions. They are designing they are making they're dealing with technology uh, They're understanding what technology means in a particular way that school provides. And uh, interestingly, it's the first country in the world to, to, do, to do that. And technology education exists in quite a number of countries around the world, uh, New Zealand, Australia, even uh, in France and uh, Sweden and uh, over in the States as well. The subject itself touches, even in the curriculum documents, you'll find words like propositional and procedural knowledge. and. Uh, Practically, it it deals with the the, the tacit as well. So there's some quite interesting things about the subject and the knowledge. I've fought long and hard with uh, the subject, but it's the way in which it's been uh, put forward. And stepping back and looking at education in England more generally, we have a system where... Pre-service teachers or students teachers progress when they're on placement in school and working with young people Is measured against a predefined list of competences? We have books now with standards that they're expected to meet to demonstrate what they do and um, I've been frustrated with this system for many many years I've stood up at uh, subject conferences and talked about it. We have list of competences for the knowledge they're supposed to uh, acquire as student teachers Uh, And I seem to have been ignored. So that became the focus of my doctoral thesis, which I've I've, I've actually managed to get now. Um, So such, with all good research, it was irritating. So I I pursued it. The next step, I guess, was was to pick a methodology. And I wanted to really get a handle on those young people that become teachers. What is it like for them? What is it like? If we are going to guide people that are becoming teachers of this subject, how can we help them? How can we learn a bit more about what it is to become or to learn uh, in, in a school environment? So I went with 11 uh, participants from 11 postgrads, and I interviewed or talked to them or discussed this idea of an interview. Straight away brings you into that kind of, uh, you know, um, dynamic and where where you stand with all of that. So we had discussions about subject knowledge. This slide is particularly interesting. I might spend a bit of time on this one because as I was looking for a methodology, I kept coming back to phenomenology. There didn't seem to be any other um, way of looking at the phenomenon, looking at what was going on in school that got me to the centre of what I was looking at. So it's things like grounded theory and narrative inquiry that I use a lot within the social sciences. None of those seemed to, to, to ring true to me, and I kept coming back to phenomenology, even though from the outside as um, social scientists it's impossibly difficult to access, or it seems impossibly difficult to access. Quite a lot of the writing I came across suggested, and I believe this very strongly, that... There's a need to really understand some of the basic, or to to read at least some of the basic philosophical texts around phenomenology before you can actually start to be phenomenological in doing your uh, data research. I have another slide I didn't put in. It's got a big stack of books from uh, Husserl to Meliponte to to other things. I've wrestled. um, And I wouldn't like to suggest at all that I understand Anything like the depth that uh, that you guys will have. But in order to do a quality piece of phenomenology phenomenology or to work phenomenologically, you touch on all of these things, the pocket and reduction, description, and need to establish the position on where I where I am. Am I being highly objective in in how I look at things or being more subjective, the extent to which I'm involving others in my interpretation of what I'm seeing. All of those things are, if you like, are things to wrestle with in terms of quality in phenomenology. At least that's, that, was, that was my reading of it. Um, the author Clark Mustakas, who wrote a book about how to do phenomenology in the 1980s, was quite influential in my thinking and has been in quite a lot of other people's uh, thinking have done. Uh, research here, if we look at that. The other side of it, I'm writing a thesis, yeah, and my supervisor wants it to be quality. Of course, it's not a piece of scientific, positive, positivist kind of work. It's much more kind of naturalistic in that sense. It's always problematic, that word I find. Um, and Sarah Tracy developed eight criteria by which, uh, you know, if you're doing quality, qualitative inquiry, you're doing all of these things. It's worthwhile, it's got a lot of rigor to it, resonates, it's got a lot of coherence, and it's trustworthy. Trustworthy is a big word um, I use with my, my own, own students. So if it's going to be a quality piece of research, you need to be able to trust it. So there's this idea of um, in involving the participants in some forms of uh, phenomenological research, and that being a kind of a way of validating it or being trustworthy. Validity is a horrible scientific kind of thing in my head. So there's this tension, real tension, I think, between these two, and finding, uh, finding your ways is really problematic. The most difficult phase, I think. Within is in trying to get a grip on the data. Um, I've got these interview transcripts. I've talked, had conversation with these eleven individuals. I've got thirty-three of these transcripts sitting there. What am I going to do with them? How am I going to make sense of the the conversations that we've had? Um, Trying to be as intersubjective as possible, as I was talking, trying to approach uh, the conversation in a way that allowed them to tell the story about their experience. And I had a big question here, which I was wrestling at the time. I spent a long time trying to decide what I'm going to do. So I came across texts, you know, this is a Heideggerian uh, way of doing this. This is a uh piece of research. And the question in my head was, if, do I need to put my stamp down? Do I need to say, I am definitely going to use a Heideggerian way of thinking and looking at the world, and is that going to give me credibility? I think, this might be pretty controversial, that you have to find your own way. And there's some some of the writing within phenomenology suggests that, that you need to be true to the phenomenon. So the approach that I've used... The form of phenomenology I've used is mine. That's the way I'm seeing it. Yeah, controversial or however that might be. And um, last week I was thinking about this, think about the way, and then I remember I saw, I read the uh, the Tao Te Ching when I was at university. I think that was probably where I first these philosophical thoughts started going a long time ago. And uh, that, you know, Taoism is about Tao's about finding the way and finding your way as a, a route through navigating through these peaks and standing on the bedrock of uh, people like Husserl and Heidegger and building your kind of philosophy. But also a way of being, in a sense. So that my approach to uh, research was trying to be as phenomenological as I could. Rather than, you know... I'll skip over skip over a few slides, but the one thing I will, I will try and touch on is the way that I struggled with wrestling with the data. Okay, we have a conversation at another time on how to do it. Um, but the idea that I got from a guy called Stuart Devonish who builds on some work from Georgie. I'll give you the references for that. The idea of actually selecting words that people have, that have come up in the conversation working out what's of significance, and then kind of grouping these and categorizing these. So I spent quite a bit of time doing that and used some qualitative data analysis to do it. And then I stopped, and I thought, you know what? I'm being led down a route where I'm actually categorizing, compartmentalizing, and it's it's sounding very kind of too scientific in my head. It's become too structured. So I went on several other journeys, trying different ways of looking at the text, of of reading it. And what I ended up with, or another way in which I, I, I worked, was to look at the pieces of the transcript. And rather than taking them word by word and taking them apart and trying to work out the meanings that way, was to think myself about what was the general characteristic of what the individual had said, and use my words from my 20 odd years of experience, and use those, and then get those for a particular transcript, and then work a way of kind of framing those around. And that gave me different ways of looking at the data or do looking at the, the words that people have said. Um, all of this still fairly kind of structured and slightly atomized. But it did at least allow me to come down to some conclusions in terms of what I thought the experience of those individuals was. The general conclusions I had in terms of try- helping my supervisor, as it were, so when those students or when those pre-service teachers go on to placements. They experience um, a lot of uh, issues around relationships with other people. Their experience is not necessarily, they don't necessarily have a lot of control. They don't have a lot of power. They're in the hands of other people who are shaping their experience. And the knowledge they develop uh, is quite often kind of shaped by the context, by the environment within the which, which which they work. So the context often affects the knowledge that they develop. So you have the idea of one set of standards by which all of these individual teachers are all going to come out with the same knowledge. is absolute nonsense. OK, I'll tear them up in an instant in terms of our subject standards. Um, just on a very practical base, each school has different types of resources. So when you learn to drill a hole, or you learn to stitch materials together, using different tools. So the knowledge you develop is different, it's physically different. Another interesting thing was kind of a knowledge being actively created, so it's just in time. So it's for those particular children in that situation, in that school, at that time, that's when that knowledge is created. It only, it only exists temporarily for one moment in time. So some interesting conclusions about placements. I have more reflections on phenomenology. um, And for me, I adopted what um, Max Van Manen has in his book, um, one of his his 1990s (laughs) on phenomenology. He suggests that looking at the phenomenon in different directions, different aspects, allows you to understand it better. So this combination of Looking at the texts in one way or in another way, or having a holistic kind of interpretation, which I'd also done, it provides different aspects. Um, for me, phenomenology evolves. Again, perhaps controversially, I I think we need phenomenology that's not only built on the work of established philosophers, but one that's contemporary and one that kind of works us at the moment um, and there's this idea that just, I suppose the theory the practice this, this was the, the title of the, the conference itself theory and practice one of the subtitles um, for me trying to do phenomenology is about being phenomenological but in a way that relates to the reality that you're working with you, you, you can't separate them you know, um, therefore, phenomenology is really a method you can kind of pick up and put there. It's developed in, in with the context that you're actually looking at. So I managed to get my PhD. Anyway, that's the main thing. <laughs> I was concerned. They seem fairly happy with it. You, as philosophers, might might have real problems with what what I've done. Um, but through the process. I've become more and more interested in in, in technology, of course, because these are people who are involved in helping children to create three-dimensional objects, from finger puppets to, had a 6-1-Me, built a hovercraft once. Okay, it worked. (laughs) Um, So my shift is now really moving towards technology. And um, just one closing remark about more reading and writing about phenomenology. I felt I could do this as a phenomenological study of these pre-service teachers' experience because I've been a teacher and I work and I know and I understand the environments and the context that they're going through. That might be, therefore, the only bit of phenomenology research that I can ever do, apart from thinking about my own life and how I spend my time because I know that and understand that. Um, if I start to look at other people's experience doing different things, how will I relate to that? I couldn't do midwifery, you know? It would, it would be a nonsense, wouldn't it? So I'm not sure about Phenomenal Bit anymore, but very interested in technology. Um, and I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. I invite any uh, comments or questions from me.